Hey there, welcome to another episode of Teams at Work. My name is Daria Gutnick, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Bunch. I'm co-hosting the show with Anthony Rio, who is also my co-founder and our COO. We are on a mission to help anyone become a great leader. And together with our team, we're building an AI leadership coach to achieve exactly that. This podcast is for a new generation of leaders. Every episode, we talk to an inspiring guest who is running a high-performance team or a company to learn about their journey and what they do in their day-to-day to be an effective leader. So no matter if you're leading a team already or simply interested in becoming more effective at work, you can build your leadership skills by investing as little as two minutes a day with our AI leadership coach. If you're curious, download it for free on the Apple App Store today by simply searching Bunch Leadership Coach. Your journey starts with a quick assessment of what kind of leader you are today, and then you will receive personalized daily leadership tips to help you grow faster into the leader you want to become tomorrow. Today, our guest is Sonia Joseph, an experienced computational neuroscience researcher and the co-founder of Alexandria Labs, an accessible Web3 internet library. Sonia speaks about many, many different topics. It's a super exciting and very dynamic conversation. The highlights were she was speaking about how founder communities helped her discover her own unconscious biases, how she built her founding engineering team from scratch, what lab professors and startup CEOs have in common and can learn from each other, and of course, also her vision for the future of AI and how humanity will evolve in the future years. So I really hope you enjoy the conversation as much as Anthony and I did. Hello, hello. Welcome to yet another episode of Teams at Work. And we are here today with Sonia Joseph. Hey, Sonia. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Excited to be here. Nice. We are super fun too because, yeah, we met at the uh, Treehouse, a female founder collective thing. And we've had so many amazing conversations about all sorts of things, building startups, building engineering teams, and so on. And it's been such a great pleasure. I can't wait to ask you all these questions and also share your knowledge with our audience. And so I'll jump right in. Actually, our first question is, what do you think is the biggest challenge for tech co-founders today? And how do you tackle it? This is really interesting because like tech is quite broad. So like specifically, like my background is in Web3 and AI, which are moving extraordinarily quickly. And in both fields in the last six months, there have been some like major, major changes. So I would say it's just like keeping up with what is happening while still like executing like pretty relentlessly on your current goal. In Web3, you've sort of seen like, you know, this evolution of like the NFT world. You've seen the Web3 world itself kind of like form these like conceptual distinctions. Like originally it was like, you know, DAOs, NFTs and DeFi. But now you're seeing the rise of like more infrastructure, companies that have been around for many, many years, but I think are just gaining more publicity and users. So on sort of like understanding how that ecosystem is going and learning how to develop in this ecosystem, which feels culturally different from a lot of the Web2 ecosystems in a lot of like very critical ways, has required like my team to just learn extraordinarily quickly in terms of <laughs> what even to do. And how do you do that actually? Like how do you keep up? How do you manage I think it's like a lot of it is actually very community based because it's like things are changing so quickly where like, you know, reading articles online is not going to be fast enough. But it's just like having like sort of like your mastermind circle of people who, you know, are also keeping up with the space and talking to them pretty regularly. And Web3 culture is also pretty open where you can like, this is sort of like meme, you can like DM anyone, like whether they're like a random engineer or like a billionaire and there's a huge chance they'll respond. 
So a lot of it, despite being like having a technical background, has been incredibly social and has relied on a lot of social information. Super interesting. When you zoom out and you kind of look at the space and think more broadly about like co-founding a company and being a female uh, co-founder as well, what do you kind of see in the ecosystem being like the biggest challenges for underrepresented groups of founders? So more generally speaking. Yeah, I love this question. So like, I like, I often like thinking about, you know, underrepresented founders from actually a machine learning perspective, where I often thought a lot of like bias was like overfitting on like too few samples. So just like to put that in like more colloquial terms, like if I see like a hundred men start companies, but I only see one woman start a company and that woman like is like fails dramatically in some like biotech startup and is sort of like blasted over the media, um, of course, referring to Elizabeth Holmes. This gives me not a lot of models or scripts to follow, which makes decision-making actually quite a lot harder in the sense where there's a strong sense I have to constantly be inventing my own narratives and also images of what success looks like. I I think women in general just have like more, a larger decision-making space, like in society as a very tangible example, like how you dress. There are like so many more ways to dress as a woman than as a man. So there's sort of like this this decision exhaustion of like, what should I be wearing? But more broadly, like, like how should I be acting? How should I be behaving? What should I be doing? Like what sort of like brand or like PR presence should I have? And I think just like there being less examples actually makes this more of an exhausting space. So it's actually very interesting. So my sister has a sociology background and for her thesis was writing about women in chess. And there are a lot of parallels, of course, to women in tech. And what she noticed is that the most successful women in chess, which is like notoriously male dominated, it's like 98, 99% men, is that the successful women often had exceptionalist narratives that they like privately held. So they often held narratives like, I am like different in this way, like, and that kind of created like a sense of like specialness and protection that enabled them to thrive in environments in which they might not have as many, the same like level of cues. So I do think I hold these exceptionalist narratives. They're not to be confused with egotistical narratives. Like, I don't think that's like quite the point, but more these sort of narratives that I go back to and follow that give me a lot of confidence in being able to sort of operate smoothly in environments where I'm often the only woman in the room. I think this is super interesting. And thank you for giving us a little bit of that like scientific background as well. Maybe breaking it down into more actionable steps. So for our audience, who I think are probably many of who are facing similar challenges, How would you go about or how would you advise to go about like finding your narrative that actually gives you this like unique positioning or where you are like allowed to be yourself in a way and you can actually justify it for yourself? Oh, I'm different in this way and that's why I can like be here and that's why I can actually achieve these things. Yeah, that's a really fascinating question. Like I'm not sure I myself would be happy with my answer, although I I can share what I do in practice. Um, <laughs> this is something I would love to hear like a range of women when talk about, actually, I think it's fascinating, but I often actually look at history. I will look at, you know, like Queen Elizabeth or like Cleopatra or like Joan of Arc and also like scaffold it together with a very few positive, like semi-positive examples, women in media, like Queen's Gambit being one example. I think that example is like flawed in a lot of ways, but, but there are certain elements of it in which it is a woman showing a lot of competence. And of course, like my friends, like, I think my friends are actually way better than any historical source or or media possible because they're real people. But like the incredibly brilliant women I'm surrounded by just like sort of taking like the best of their behaviors and then scaffolding the sort of narrative where like I, I think a, a lot of success is like self-manifesting. Like I am going to succeed. Like if I do fail, like it, it will be like an intelligent type of failure. Like I'm going to give it my all. Like there have been hundreds and thousands and thousands of women who have been under immensely difficult positions as well. And they've conducted themselves with such grace that I can look to and like draw 
inspiration from, but also men too. Like I take a lot of inspiration from men. Like I think gender is like very, very strange in a lot of ways. Like I grew up in like somewhat isolation, like in high school, I was not very social. So as a result, I developed a very strong like mental world in which I didn't seem to realize that like racism and sexism were concepts until I went to college and started interacting more deeply with men. And in many ways, I think this was actually like quite healthy because I just operate in some ways in my own reality in ways that are protective. And if you look at like studies, like women who like go to boarding schools that are all female often perform better because they're in these environments and they're just like not experiencing that much sexism and racism, which causes, you know, imposter syndrome and uh, like um, stereotype threat. And they only encounter that later once their psyches are more are more developed. So in terms of actionable steps, like everyone is different, but I love historical examples. I love mastermind groups of strong women. And I love spending a lot of time alone, just thinking, being in my own reality in a way that is productive and, power, and empowering. Very, very cool, Sonia. And uh, I heard from Daria that the Treehouse, I guess, mastermind or that kind of experience was was one of those in a way, right? Is that true? Oh, yeah. So Trios was incredible. So, so I guess for context, I, like my co-founder of my company, Amelie, co-founded um, with Cushy Treehouse, where I met Daria. And that was absolutely incredible. So it was all women. It was in the middle of New York. And all the conversations were like stuff that normally, like I, I almost cringe to say this, is stuff I talk about with men, in ter- like statistically. Like a lot of conversations about the technical landscape, about like managing companies, about politics, about you know, various like stack decisions one might make. And it was very good to have those conversations with only women, almost from a machine learning perspective, it like increased like my training data. Like my brain was like aware, like even I, like, I have unconscious biases too, which I dislike, but it's good to be aware of them and admit them. So I noticed my unconscious biases became challenged and more decorrelated because almost like my brain as like a learning algorithm is like noticing like, wow, like I'm with women we're all like incredibly competent and interested in these like technical subjects and highly ambitious and leaders and executives in our field. Like this is fantastic. This is great. So I think it created a very positive reality and vibe that actually made me notice subtle things about my more male dominated environments for better or worse. So I highly recommend creating these kind of environments and having it just as one of many worlds that you can access and, and draw energy from. No, super cool. Awesome to hear. And so I, um, through Dario, I just heard about Alexandria Labs, obviously, recently. And I want to ask all about it because Books on Change sounds, as a book nerd and sort of literature nut myself, I'm not crazy about it, but like to a degree, I can't wait to hear about Alexandria Labs. But just first and foremost, I mean, just a quick look at your profile, obviously. You spent some time in research and now you're a founder. Tell the audience about that transition some of the things that you've learned, but also some of the challenges perhaps. And then we'll dive into Alexandria Labs, of course. Yeah, no, I'm so happy you asked this question. So my background is like largely in neuroscience, like biological neuroscience and like computational, then moving towards like machine learning and and AI and mainly ending up in that space. And for a while, like I, I was like really fascinated actually by the founding stories of like these so-called like focused research organizations like DeepMind and OpenAI and the backgrounds of the founders. So the founder of DeepMind, for example, is Damas Lasabas, who sort of had this insight that there's a lot of like arbitrage to be created if you know both research and startups and you can build these sort of like scientific companies. And in his case, that was DeepMind. So he had like a very deliberate background of sort of founding two video game companies and sort of mastering like the meta skills of like, how do you start a company, which is like not obvious until you do it. Um, and how do you like lead and manage teams? And then went back and got a PhD in computational neuroscience at, at, at Gatsby. And his third company was DeepMind, which is like a major like research, like game changer in AI. 
So my perspective coming from the research world is like, if you're able to start companies, the company is almost like a scientific instrument in itself. It's like the company itself becomes like a tool with which to do research. So mastering startup skills became like very, very, very important to me. And it's something you can only learn by doing. Also, if you look at these sort of scientific mega projects from the Manhattan Project to, you know, the Large Hadron Collider, like the Webb Telescope, like you see examples of human coordination where science is like very advanced. So I guess it's all context. But in terms of like what my own journey was like, like it was I had to learn very quickly. And I like came from a place in which I was mainly a coder. I would like uh, just to code like train neural nets in my room. So sort of understanding that startups are in some ways like more high dimensional games, like your decision space is just much faster than research. So it was a lot of mentorship, like a lot of like reaching out to founders, talking to them, sort of absorbing implicit knowledge, understanding, you know, how to fundraise. Um, And again, that was a lot reaching out to founders and and getting that mentorship. Happy to talk more about that as well. Um, How to hire, how to interview, how to bring people onto your team, how to lead. Like think about a startup is you're moving so quickly that every month uh, at the stage we're at, every month I'm doing something different. So it's been really good and I'm happy to unpack any part of that. Sure. Well, let, let me, first and foremost, tell us about Alexandria Labs, the status, where you're at now, the team. Tell us all about it. Yeah, of course. So we are in pre-seed stage. We built our founding team a couple months ago, and now it is the summer of building for us. So we are building and prepared to launch in the fall. We are putting books on chain. So I'm deeply interested in the idea of an internet library that is accessible, that is not behind paywalls of Amazon books or Google books, which kind of set this like ebook standard that I don't think is good for humanity or even good from a technological standpoint. And the interesting thing about like Web3 decentralization is that you actually open a huge realm of possibilities of what you could do technologically. For example, our current search paradigm is Google. We all go on Google. And Google's actually like puts a robots.txt file at the center of every site, which actually prevents other, other search engines from like crawling and indexing the site in the same way they do. What's interesting about Alexandria is that books are ultimately content. They are documents. So I'm extremely compelled by, yes, having this decentralized library where authors can upload content. And actually with NFT scarcity mechanisms, you can like treat books like physical objects and actually like lend them out to people, which has never been done before. We're used to thinking of eBooks as like a physical, as like a streaming good, almost along the lines of Netflix, instead of being this physical object. So that's all exciting. But sort of going back to like the Google stuff, the Web3 content layer stuff, we are interested in creating a content layer of the internet on which you can run any search algorithm on top of. And maybe the search algorithms themselves are NFTs. Like the way NFTs are portrayed in like common culture is just like not accurate. Like NFTs are like unique variables on like global computers. So I'm interested in like these really deep questions kind of of what does the next generation of the internet look like? How do we learn from the lessons of like the past internet to inform the internet we build going forward in terms of providing knowledge access for, for humanity? I was actually wanting to follow up on the kind of startup journey a little bit and also selfishly interested in building engineering teams. What did you learn so far from building yours at Alexandria Labs? I know it's not the first team you built, but it's kind of like the first your own, if you know what I mean. So yeah, walk us through like what the biggest learnings were. Yeah. So in building our engineering team, like I just read a ton of articles that maybe I can, I can link somewhere about startups. There was one article name escapes me, but it was about sort of 
deliberately engineering your talent pool so that there's like a strong like diversity of skill sets, but everyone has like the same or similar value system and how there's um, you can almost do this in like a formulaic way. So we were actually like very deliberate about hiring our engineering team because in the beginning, like the people are the company. Um, that's always true, but it's most especially true at such an early stage. So my co-founder and I sat down and actually wrote like a very long document about like our values, like what we cared about, like what we wanted from this company, what we wanted to put into the world. And then we wrote a long document about our technical needs. Like what are we trying to build? Like what type of people do we need? We had a third section as to like what are our resource constraints? Like what is our budget? And then from there, we started developing these archetypes of like engineers that we wanted. We knew we wanted people who would pass the so-called Sunday test, meaning that if you guys weren't working together, would you like hang out with them on Sunday? And we wanted people who were philosophical and thoughtful builders in the space, given that NFTs kind of have a reputation for being short term and full of flippers. Like we didn't want any degen culture. We wanted like a very strong engineering ethos. We wanted rigor. So once we had kind of like designed the sort of mental model, we just like blasted like Twitter with with our application. Like we sent our type form basically into every Slack group we could find and just tried to get as much reach as possible. We found like that our strongest candidates mainly came from Twitter and would reach out to us. And it was often based off some like deeper interest. It was like, yes, like Web3 library. That makes sense. I believe in this mission. And they would often demonstrate this interest actually like outside of Alexandria, like completely independently. Like one of our front end engineers was working with one of the protocols that we were interested in and had won a hackathon. And of course, like the other element here is like forming ties with like communities that have similar value systems. So we really like the people at Kernel, which is sort of like thoughtful building in, in the crypto space. So one of our engineers came from there. So we already had these deeper ties with communities who we really agreed with ideologically, who we were able to to source like engineers from. So, so that's a little sourcing. Like there's more to talk about in terms of like screen, like recruiting, like how do you get people to join you? And also like interviewing, like how do you assess like technical skill? And then of course the whole element of like culture building and like management and, you know, like day-to-day operational processes and all of that could be its own conversation. How do you actually from, thank you so much for offering kind of like the menu. I, I would like to toggle and I'm toggling into, um, um, how do you actually get people to join you? I had a really interesting conversation this morning with another founder who's originally based in Switzerland from like ETH Zurich, I think, and was in uh, YC though. And so was like in San Francisco for a while and was kind of like deliberating, like, are we going to get European engineers on board, American, a mix? What's like our strategy? And it was really interesting to spar. And I had to face the same question. Like, um, how do you actually get people to join you when there are so many options on the market? So I would love to hear your take on this. Yeah, this is a really fascinating question. So like, I find actually sort of like major religions to be very fascinating. Like, I think every human has certain like circuits and I'm speaking pseudoscientifically here, but, but, but like in a metaphorical way, certain like circuits in your brain that want to be part of a higher purpose and want to contribute something meaningful to like this larger culture. And I feel this very strongly. Like I want to contribute something lasting to humanity. And the sense of meaning, I think, is something that is hard to find in a lot of the economy. And is something that like I cannot do something if I don't see its higher purpose. And it's something I tap into when talking to engineers. I think the people on our team and the people I'm working with all want to deeply contribute something to humanity and like have this like moonshot of like a civilization scale project. 
So that is often like the frame and like the value system. So it's like looking at what's most dear and meaningful to me and like amplifying that in conversations with people and finding people who resonate with that mission. But then, of course, it's like understanding the needs. Like, like every person you bring on your team has like a slightly different like needs, whether it's in working, like maybe you don't want to meet before a certain hour because you're on Pacific time. Like maybe you want to be remote. Maybe you want to be part time. Like we are so early stage that we have the flexibility to be more bespoke with every person we're working with, which I think is unusual. But I think it's actually one of the draws because people feel like they have, can kind of like tailor the position to suit their working needs. And we're able to accommodate that given that we're so young. And then you can, of course, kind of like draw archetypes from there as well, right? To understand, oh, we like work really well in that way with this person and like what makes them special and what drives their needs. Is there anyone else that we can um, find that has a similar set of needs? So I really like this idea of like archetyping, not in a demographic way, but actually based on needs and motivations almost in a way. Yeah, cool. Thank you so much for <laughs> for sharing insights. I think it's over to you, Anthony. Yeah, very cool. I also think maintaining some element of, um, and I'm not sure this is an actual word, but like bespokeness is sort of central to all of our founder journeys, right? Even as you scale sort of that one little twinkle of bespokeness in your in your onboarding can really make a, a new recruitees or a new team members sort of make that delight bell go off, right? So I think that's always something I try and remind myself of. And I know Daria does an amazing job at it. So, well, cool. I'd love to pivot back over to sort of like your background and how it's informing the way you're building your team, because you're talking to two founders who are building a business and an app around taking like mainstream or not mainstream science and making it more accessible for managers, leaders, and people that are building teams and cultures. You have a pretty extensive background, as you said, in sort of research and also neuroscience. I mean, I think there's the general question here of like, how do you as a founder looking at your team and your culture that you're building, are you like actively taking science and ideas and then implementing them in your team? But I think the more specifically, like, are you taking anything from your neuroscience background, any of the knowledge, and is it helping you actually work with others? Is it helping you actually build your team, build your culture, build your business? I always find that to be a fascinating thing to talk to founders who have that background. Yeah, that's a fascinating question. So a lot of my neuroscience background is more in like molecular or like physiological systems or computational systems than actually behavioral. So I would love to talk to someone with more of a psychology background in terms of how that transfers. In terms of how my scientific background is influencing me, a lot of it is observing sort of the structural parallels between research and startups and what each demographic is good at, which is actually like in some ways not that much of an overlapping set. It is interesting observing my professors because in some ways they are like the CEOs of companies, except their companies are labs. And there are a lot of like similar dynamics in terms of how they build their lab that can be transferred to how one builds a company and also like vice versa. So that is sort of like a topic of conversation. Like one of the labs at my research institute, Mila, transitioned to Asana. And maybe to you or me or anyone listening to this podcast, using Asana as like an obvious like no-brainer. But to a research lab, that's actually kind of like a big deal and <laughs> kind of it feels like a cultural, a cultural shift. So in terms of like drawing upon my scientific background, I think it's actually more in like observing org structure than like the actual material I was studying, which was more like uh, processing like neural signals. Cool. Do you have like an example maybe or something, maybe not at the current stage, but also maybe in previous experiences where you sort of like on an org structure level or something? had an insight and implemented something that really changed the game or changed the moment for you or your team? Yeah. I mean, one thing that I think I took from research was sort of, it was cultural. I love scientific culture and I love its openness to learning and inquiry. So we transferred that to our current company, which is necessary given that our company is moving so fast, the space is moving so fast that we always have to be learning. So for example, on Thursday, we have like weekly lightning talks where you can share 
what you've learned. And there is a somewhat academic flavor to this in the sense where like a lot of the material like I'm interested in is like more based off information retrieval or technical in nature. So I think like bringing that research culture or that culture of like scientific discovery into Alexandria through this way has been pretty critical in terms of how the tone we are setting on a day-to-day basis. Very cool. Maybe I can take a bit of a turn and zoom into your own personal journey and the learning and the growth there. Uh, one question I really, really like to, that we actually ask, I think what most of our guests is what are you personally still trying to grow in and like what's an area that you would like to improve and why? Yeah, that's a great question. So the area that I'm trying to improve in most is like balancing focus. Like, do I focus like, and focus is on multiple levels, right? Like one is like, do I focus on the next month? Do I focus on the next six months? Do I focus on the next like 12 months, like one year, five years? And I think this is a trade-off like every startup founder is making where you have to zoom in and execute relentlessly on the present in order to get anything done. And this can be as like low level as like, we have this like system bug. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to spend like several hours like investigating it. Or it could be as high level as like, what is like the future of the internet, which is like very zoomed out. So sort of like navigating between these zooms and like making this like trade off with my team has been very interesting. And I feel like I'm playing this like giant game of like civilization, the video game civilization, where it's not totally obvious where to allocate resources at any given time. So becoming an optimal like resource allocator for my goals is like really what I'm trying to do. Like to like sort of bring this down more tangibly, like yesterday I was talking to my co-founder and one of our advisors. I'm like, all right, we've built this great engineering team. They are making like steady, like good progress on like our first phase. Do I put resources into doing this first phase or do I like map out a broader like Web3 landscape to sort of like direct where phase two goes? And how do I make that trade-off? And the trade-off we agreed upon was like 70% phase two and 30% like phase one. But it was like a very non-obvious decision. So I'm trying to improve in like focus, in execution, in balancing delegation, all of which I am not totally used to yet. That's super, super relatable. And I'm glad you gave that example because my follow-up question would have totally been like, how do you actually zoom in and out? So maybe I still ask it. Like, I think this challenge on a founder level is just so common to like have to jump from one detail thing in code or in a financial plan or whatever it may be and having to make that decision versus then needing to zoom out and jump on a podcast and talk about whatever learnings and future of AI and (laughs) what other stuff. So did you figure out any like hacks for yourself that help you to put yourself into the new context quickly? Oh man, this is such an interesting question. And this is something I'm still learning about. So I'd love to hear how you do this as well. (laughs) So like one thing is that when you are an early stage founder in the beginning, you are doing everything. Like it's actually one of the few examples in society where journalism, I think, thrives because like you have to be good at a variety of things because you just haven't hired anyone yet. Once you hire people, you start delegating your own functionality out. But in the beginning, you have to be doing everything to even know like what to hire for and like what needs to be done. So you're slowly watching like your journalism become more and more special. And for me, I'm noticing my strengths and weaknesses because I'm now specializing into what my strength is, which... I think is like mapping out technical landscapes, like frontier tech landscapes and being able to synthesize and understand these like very quickly. It's like very relevant to research. So in terms of zooming in and out, like I'm like, okay, like I want to improve on like sort of week by week execution. I would say that's actually not my strength. And my strength is actually like year by year execution and long time skills. I think a ton about the future and by future, I mean like 5,000 years out, but I try to think about this in the more, in the most grounded way I can. 
So we have basically like delegated or like hired out like the day-to-day operations, which gives me confidence that we're going to execute on our immediate goals because there are people I trust, like we're making steady progress on this and frees me to think about like, what does the next year look like? So a lot of this focus was like delegating, delegating like the overall company focus in, in a way that made the most sense. The other thing I found helpful was just like mental models. Sometimes like the right mental model for me just like gives like the right representation of the information. And I was actually looking at a lot of musicians and like musical composers and how when you compose a symphony, you can think on multiple time scales. You can think on like, you know, the next couple of notes. You can think upon like the next few stanzas or you can think about the level of like the entire symphony. So being able to like zoom in and out of time scales was hugely important I fell in love with Asana. (laughs) Like that might sound like obvious or strange to like a lot of the people I think who are listening to this, but coming from a research background in which Asana was not a common tool, I found that heavily using Asana helped my processing on like a week by week level and helped greatly helped my planning abilities. And I think that one tool has like really like actually leveled up a lot of my thinking. That's super cool to hear. And I'm sure uh, Asana will be very happy about this. This is not a product placement. Um, This is just truly a fan and a convinced user, um, but it's really cool. Any any product manager, though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was about to say, like, what do you think makes it so impactful for you? Like, what parts make a difference? This ability to represent one's thoughts. So, like, I would previously just use, like, you know, like the most basic to-do list, like pen and paper. And I actually still do this. I think it's like the complexity of the internet can sometimes just be same. (laughs) But like in just having this to-do list, my thinking was like very like, what am I doing tomorrow? What am I doing tomorrow? What am I doing tomorrow? Which is actually a very limited way of planning instead of like, what am I doing like a Thursday of next month? And I think this is obvious to anyone who's ever planned anything, but like in having a tool where I can more flexibly represent information, it was just easier to have a better sense of control over my time. That might sound very simple and obvious, but it actually just made a huge difference to my functioning. I totally can relate to that. Let's zoom all the way out, though, when you think about the long-term future of humanity and the world and so on. What role do you think does machine learning and AI play in it? Like, Which stance do you take on how will AI change our lives in the far future? <laughs> Great question. Yes, yeah, zooming out all the way from Asana and, and from coding bugs, which are deeply relevant to the present in order to get anything done. In terms of the next, <laughs> in terms of the future. So one of the reasons I entered AI and the science in the first place is because as a teenager, I just read a ton of transhumanist literature. Like, what is like the next level of human evolution? Like, what is like the singularity? All of these like sort of questions as to like what is life? Like, what is consciousness? Like, what is the nature of information? And in an alternate life, I think I would have just been a philosopher or just studied metaphysics. But I'm realizing like in order to actually answer these sort of metaphysical questions, it actually might make sense to just build large instruments like along the lines of the Hadron Collider or in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's like building like a giant supercomputer called Deep Thought where you ask it like, what is the meaning of life? Which honestly, I think is like a terrible question, but it's like, getting at the sense of like you can build tooling to answer philosophical questions. And this tooling often looks like higher intelligences. So this has actually motivated my journey into science and startups, because it's not just about the science, but also about having like the operational and founding abilities to create and organize and manage people and resources. So I think that the future of AI is going to be very critical in like the next stage of human evolution, and that humanity is going to change quite a bit as a species. And because we are like, you know, so-called conscious beings with agency, we have a lot of like cognitive control over how our evolution is directed. And this is like 
the greatest like moral responsibility like anyone could ever have. And there are also a lot of like competing and strange, just like uh, int- sort of interests. I think it's everyone's interest actually, like what is sort of like the future of not just life, but also information itself, which I think is more fundamental than life. So that's sort of a more zoomed out answer. Awesome. Here's a crazy question. So it, maybe this happened in a, a bit of, well, one of the last lightning talks in the team or something, but like, what is the most impactful or most insightful or coolest thing that's blown your mind that you've read, listened to, or come across recently? Like what is the most recent book, article, concept, idea that's really just trying to change the game for you? Oh gosh, what a great question. I can talk about reading about actually the Webb telescope. Like recently those images came out of deep field that were absolutely like mind blowing by NASA. So I was reading more into that organizational project, uh, you know, tying back to everything I've been saying, like how do you organize these like scientific endeavors and execute upon them? And I think what blew my mind is like somewhere in the history of the telescope, I, I'm going to just like slightly be vague because I don't entirely remember, but, but the, yeah. the founders of, of the telescope wa- just wanted to execute upon this project and sort of said, this telescope is going to cost 500 million. And the telescope ended up costing 10 billion. But there was a sort of like argument that like if they'd said it would cost 10 billion, the telescope would never have happened. So they had to say it was like 500 million. And from a founder perspective or fundraising perspective, I'm like, wait, what are the implications of this? Like, (laughs) well, did they realize it would cost 10 billion? And they were saying 500 million because that's the only way to start investing resources in this. And once you have some cost and momentum, then you can like keep going. Or do they genuinely think it would cost 500 million? And like all these questions of like resource estimation that are relevant to like startups and, and business kind of like came through my head. So I just thought that was very interesting. The other thing that sort of blew my mind, and this is a bit more broad than that one example, is reading the book Debt by David Graeber, which is like a 5,000 year like history of, of the economy and, and debt and like very, very fundamental. And I just recommend that book to every, anyone. Super cool. I have it on Audible, Sonia. I have been meaning to read it, but it is also 5,000 years of history and very long. And I'm intimidated to start, but you have now catalyzed it for me. It's something really important, I think, conceptually for us to, I mean, as Americans, for sure, like, it's just kind of a must read, I think, but I will now get on it. Thanks to you. I appreciate that. We'll link it in the show notes for anyone who dares. Yeah, link it. And I'm not finished. It's very dense. But even I think just reading like one chapter, even out of context, I think is worth it. Super cool. Super cool recommendation. I think we have one last question left for you, which is, I think, Anthony's favorite question that I get to ask today which is if you go back in time, if you could go back in time and you would give advice to your younger self now looking back on the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, what would be the advice you would have recommended yourself to consider? Oh man, a bunch of things. And maybe I like list them in like a toggle kind of way. And then yeah. <laughs> if there's one you want to back, we can go into it. And it works. <laughs> one, it might sound a great cliche uh but it's like trust yourself believe in yourself like people are going to be telling you so many people are going to just be giving you advice and their advice is like always well-meaning usually but like informed by their own context and background and if i'd follow to the advice of others i would just not really like like my life that much in a lot of cases like trust yourself believe in yourself when others don't and this is like in some ways like very echoed advice but it's so critical 
And actually, like, I, I there was one point in my life where I very, I got very deep into sort of like manifestation TikTok culture, that a lot of which is by like sixteen year old like young woman. <laughs> and this it was actually strange to me. I, I don't really like TikTok, but but this sort of like energy and like self belief and like the world in some ways starts conforming to to an extent, like starts conforming to your expectations. I think there's a lot of truth to that. The other thing would have been to study honestly physics. I don't think studying neuroscience was actually the wise decision. I think I should have studied more math and more physics. And one of the reasons I didn't study math was actually due to imposter syndrome. And, you know, it relates back to earlier conversations about like women, women in STEM and not having enough examples. And like, there's always like an archetype of like the male, like genius mathematician, like beautiful mind, like at Princeton, like blah, blah, blah. I was at Princeton and I felt like that narrative was like not as accessible to me. But I really wish I just like studied like pure physics and math and just like gotten <laughs> worked through the imposters and Rome. And like ultimately like math and physics are very beautiful. So sort of creating these sort of environments in which it, the knowledge feels like it's mine and it feels like I own it. And the third thing would have just been to talk to people sooner. I think my life really started changing when I just started like reaching out to like the most brilliant people I know, like aiming for the top and like just like getting coffee with them and asking to to talk with them. So I would have told my younger self, even in high school, just like code email scientists you like, like code email, like <laughs> business people you like, just like ask to meet, like even if only like one in 10 response to you, that meeting could like change your life. So it would be to like put yourself, yourself out there. Like the world is like way, the American economy in which I'm part of is way less dangerous than what my animal, like reptilian brain believes it is. My reptilian brains optimized for like 5,000 years ago in which there were, you know, predators in the jungle and the world was actually much dangerous. So some unconscious level, I think everyone is just more afraid than they actually have to be given our environment is like much safer. Sonia, I have to ask, given the fact that you said that, I think Daria's probably shaking her head knowing what I'm about to ask maybe. I had a very, I think, very different experience, but very similar in the sense that one of my biggest almost personal, it's not a regret because I don't really think I... It's like one of these things where I would go back and tell myself is just like focus on math a bit more. Just had so many reasons not to focus on it. It was just such a massive, as I got older, it was such a massive hole in my personal and professional development. And it was a huge thing. I would tell myself to go back and just because you didn't have good teachers and just because you had people telling you you're not good at it, so you shouldn't focus on it, you should stick with it. So very similar, but like, first of all, so I can share that with you, but also just the state of math education, at least from where I came from, we were the worst school in the entire state, we were told in terms of math education. But I think the United States is, and I don't want to generalize here, I'm not an expert on the topic, but like, it is tough in the United States, right? Like, this is a topic, certain people benefit from certain exposure to certain things, but like, I certainly didn't. And it led me to really um, suffer in that regard, like as from a development point of view, I, I hated that I wasn't exposed. And I saw other people who were and it was just such a I felt like I was so far behind, particularly with like just the prominence and almost dominance of STEM education. As you get into the startup and technical world, you're just like, I don't belong here. Like, I genuinely don't belong here. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think we were saying like a lot of people feel like I resonate with all of that, actually. Like a, a lot of adults have like math trauma, like just like weird, like negative emotions around math, which is crazy. Like math is like a human tool. Math is art in so many ways. And anyone, and there's so many types of math, like our American curriculums focus on like a very narrow subset of math. If you realize math is like this giant thing and different types of brains are actually good at different types of math. Like I am not that as great at symbolic manipulation as I am in like geometry or like visualizing things spatially based off the way your brain works. So I often wonder if we should be exposing like kids to like a wide range of math when they're young and make it like fun and beautiful, like art or poetry. And then like they can sort of like gravitate towards like the math that's most compatible with their brain. 
But in terms of the second thing you said about, you know, entering like startup and technical worlds in which a lot of people have backgrounds in engineering, like it's interesting. Like this is something maybe to talk to my co-founder about who has a background in literature, but is the CEO of a tech startup. And I think what she's realizing is a lot of like leading a tech startup is being like emotional intelligence and like people skill and like resource allocation. And that's actually a very different skill set than being a good engineer. So she's thriving. She's really good at what she does. Awesome. Yeah. I was actually thinking about this this morning as well. And I was kind of like looking back and thinking like, what skills do I miss on a regular basis? And I think like now leading more of like an engineering and product team, I think the um, thing I wish I had more background in, which I think maybe comes in like business engineering type of studies, but I'm not quite sure, is actually project management. Like not product management, not like engineering management, not management altogether, just literally like old-fashioned, like boring project management with like time estimation and things like this, where I feel I learned this under such hard circumstances and my team had to suffer through so much for me like to learn it while I like could have totally studied this before and brought it to the table and that would have been great. Oh, I would actually love to hear more about how does one, because like all my project management is like very much a learn by doing, but it's something that I would, I would like actively seek more training for, but don't find like training to be like easily successful. Yeah, same, same. I, I have the same. It's interesting that you hit on this Asana point. That's why I was drilling down on it because I'm like, there is this like overlooked old fashioned skill set that we like don't talk about enough. And I think we should elevate it because it would actually help us. Yeah, no, I think it's been a really, really great conversation. Anthony, did you have any other questions though? I thought you were going for a question, but no, turned out to be a relatable comment. Oh, good. I love to end. Sonia, it's always great to end in such a personal way. I mean, maybe maybe one thing to add back to you, you've probably already read it, but like one thing that seems like it's totally right to your alley in terms of like the next book or whatever is the, given the fact that you're starting Alexandria Labs is like the almanac of Navo, um, I forget his name now, but the, the founder of AngelList, I'm, I usually have it, I'm just sick. But um, Ravikant, Naval Ravikant, like this is totally like technical, like the, one of the best startup, I think the best probably startup founder book I've ever read and very, very short. So if that's a interesting read for you, if you haven't read it already, that would be the only way to add value at the end of the session here. But it's been wonderful and I've taken a ton away and I'll definitely give this a re-listen because I think there's a ton of stuff in there I want to go back on. Excellent. Thank you so much for the rec. I'll definitely check that out. Awesome. And for everyone who's listening, we will be linking the article that Sonia recommended and the book, Deft, in the show notes, so you can check it out. If you have anything else to uh, share on like engineering management, etc., um, shoot it our way. We will include it as well, Sonia. And it's been a huge pleasure to not only chat with you here today, but also, yeah, to learn from you and to tap into your knowledge chest. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Teams at Work. Let us know what your thoughts are on today's episode. You can find us on Twitter at Daria Gutnick and at Anthony A. Rio. Or simply follow Bunch at Bunch underscore HQ. And don't forget, subscribe if you like the episode, because we always have interesting guests who join us and share valuable knowledge as well as actionable advice. Yeah, we're looking forward to hearing from you. Please do get in touch. At the beginning of the show, we did mention that we're building an AI leadership coach that helps you level up as a leader in just two minutes a day. Check us out on the Apple App Store and simply search Bunch Leadership Coach to find it. Try it out and let us know what you think. And that's a wrap. We are your hosts, Daria Gutnick and Anthony Rio, and we're excited to speak with you all soon. Till next time.